Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome back to the Writers Panel. And hey, Happy New Year. It's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. As you know, I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had almost a thousand writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows that interest you. I myself have written a bunch of things with my writing partner, Ben Acker, so not just myself. Uh, We were on the writing staff of Supernatural, of Puss in Boots, on a few other programs. Last year, though, 2017 was a weird year. We did a lot of writing, but very little of it for TV. We were out pitching a couple of projects, but I'm not allowed to talk about those yet. But here are some things you can run out and buy if you want to support me and if you want to support this show. And supporting me is supporting this show. Uh, Acker and I wrote two Star Wars one-shot comics tied into The Last Jedi, the terrific new Star Wars movie. One of these is about the salt-covered planet of Crate, which you see in the movie. It is stunningly illustrated by Mike Mayhew, who's done a bunch of Star Wars work for Marvel. Um, there are a few pages in there that are among my very favorite comic book work uh, that, that Ben and I have done. And that's out now. You can get that from your local comic book shop or at Comixology. And on January 31st, our story about Benicio Del Toro's character, DJ, is being released. It's penciled by Kev Walker and shows how DJ wound up in jail on the casino planet in The Last Jedi. Both of those are from Marvel. Both of those, get them in your comic book store or on Comixology. And if you want more Star Wars from Acker and me, you can check out our young adult series of novels called Join the Resistance. It's about a bunch of kids who join up with General Leia's resistance in the time leading up to The Force Awakens. It's Goonies with X-Wings. You're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. The first two books are currently available through Amazon, and the third in the trilogy is coming later this year. It won't be a long wait. Finally, uh, also in comics, the collected edition of Death Be Damned, the supernatural western that Acker and I wrote with our pal, showrunner Andrew Miller, uh, who's currently doing the Tremors series, is now available. It's four issues. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and we're very proud of it. That's from Boom Studios, and that collected edition is also available on Amazon. You want more plugs? Okay, on Saturday, February 3rd, just days after the second season finale, I'm doing a live panel with creator Mike Schur and the writers of The Good Place, including Megan Amram, Jen Statsky, a whole bunch of others. The event benefits Write Girl LA, a creative writing and mentoring organization that promotes creativity, critical thinking, and leadership skills to empower teen girls. We're going to talk all about The Good Place's first two seasons. We're going to answer your questions. It's going to be a really fun time for a good cause. Find tickets right now at Largo-LA.com. That's The Good Place Live Writers Panel on February 3rd. Okay, that is it for now. I'm working a lot on two major projects, one in TV and one in comics, and I'm not allowed to tell you about them. But when I am, you'll be the first to know. So thanks for listening to these long introductions. These Mark Maron-style rambling introductions. Uh, But for now, I really want to hear from you. What writers haven't I had on the podcast that you want to hear from? What TV are you watching? What am I not asking that you want to know? Email me at nerdistwriters at gmail.com. I'll read all those emails that come in, and some really nice ones have. So thank you guys, and and I'm going to use your questions going forward. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Uh, Like the Writers Panel on Facebook. Visit writerspanel.tumblr.com. That's all the social media. 
If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Now, more than ever, I need the sweet adrenaline rush of a good review to distract me from all the work I have to do and the dumb, stupid world that we live in. And now, here's a great theme song by Paul and Storm. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Thank you guys for being here. We're doing it. This is how we begin. It's just a podcast. Um, I'm going to have you guys, uh, we have a great group, and I'm going to have you guys introduce yourselves on the microphones uh, and tell us a couple of things where we may have seen your name on the TV screen, just to give the listener a little context. And uh, Holly, let's start with you. I'm Holly Sorensen. I was a journalist for a long time before I became a writer. Um, um, I was the creator and EP of uh, a show called Make It or Break It, which was on ABC Family, then now called Freeform, uh, and then EP of a show called Recovery Road on the same network, mm-hmm. and um, my new show, Step Up High Waters, coming out on YouTube Red in 10 days. When is that? What is the date? January 31st. Okay, so people can check that out yeah. if they have YouTube Red. Correct. But Correct. I think there's a free trial, so there's I really think you're right. no effing. <laughs> exactly. Just go watch the Just show. Just go watch the show. <laughs> uh, Nick. I'm Nick Antosca. I am the showrunner, writer of a show called Channel Zero on the Sci-Fi Channel. It's a horror anthology show. Um, I started as a novelist and at some point veered into TV. Uh, I worked on Teen Wolf and Hannibal, among a number of other shows. And uh, our third season, Channel Zero, Butcher's Block, comes out on... February 7th. Yeah, which is crazy. Like, the last one just ended, right, in November. Yeah, I mean, I can get into this later, but we shoot them in this really weird way where they're kind of staggered. So that one had been shot and in the can for oh, quite wow. a while. Interesting. Um, and this one we're, like, just finishing in post now. Wow. All right. We'll, we'll talk about, uh, <laughs> about Channel Zero and all of that stuff in a moment. Uh, Stacey? I'm Stacey Rukeyser. I am currently the showrunner on Unreal. Our third season premieres on February 26th. And we are currently shooting the season finale for season four. So we have a bunch in the can. We can talk about wow. that later, too. But um, I've been there since the beginning of Unreal. That's where I've been mm-hmm. for the last four years. And I've been a TV writer for uh, 16 years. So I've been working my way up the ranks um, since yeah. 2002. What was some of the other stuff where we may have seen your name? Well, I started on uh, Without a Trace. Mm-hmm. And um, then I went over to One Tree Hill. And then... I have so many standoff October <laughs> Road The Lion Game I did a stint over at ABC Family for a while too mm-hmm. I was on the last season of Greek mm-hmm. um, the first season of Crash the TV show and um, yeah another show with Marty Knoxon called Gigantic which mm-hmm. was how we first knew show. each other oh thanks um, and yeah so sort of a journeyman and now yeah. here I am yeah. and now, you, now you're running this show That's which right. is amazing um, let's talk about that for a second and then we'll sort of circle back um You've been with Unreal from the beginning, yes. and I, I loved that first season, and it strikes me as such a difficult show tonally mm-hmm. to write, mm-hmm. uh, and you can see certainly where it can become a soap opera, or it can become a broad comedy even, or some other thing, with, but it, it hits this, when it hits the sweet spot, it's such a good show. Um, how are you maintaining that? Now that you have the reins, uh, how are you, you know, working with, with I assume Sarah's still there. Yep, Sarah's um, still there. So yeah. how are you working with her and the staff to sort of keep it on track? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, 
Well, I can tell you tonally, I think of it as a super dark drama. Mm-hmm. So it's <laughs> funny when I hear people, you know, talk about the comedy and stuff. And, and certainly there there is. And I think that it's how we write these characters and and um, and some of the situational stuff that comes out of the show within a show. But ultimately, I really think of it as a character drama and starting with Quinn and Rachel mm-hmm. and in their hearts and minds and going from there. But um, – but from the beginning, so so I had worked with Marty once before um, on Gigantic, and so she brought me in to um, Unreal to sort of run it when she wasn't going to be there because she had two shows on the air at that time, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce and Unreal. And so, you know, and then and it was based on the short film that Sarah had uh, written and directed. So tonally, it was great to have the mm-hmm. short film because then – you weren't in that sort of development hell of everybody at the studio and the network saying, what is the show and, right. and how should it be? It was There was actually sort of a, a piece of material and an actual film to the say this is very what we clear, wanted to be. Yeah. Which can often be the trickiest part of watching yeah, a show. Yeah, for sure. And so um, anyway, so yeah, so then that was um, in the first season and then uh, – in the second season, I think it sort of became clear that Marty was um, even less available than she thought she would be because of all of the projects that she had. Yeah. And um, for a number of reasons, they felt that they needed to bring in a very experienced showrunner with a lot of altitude. And so Carol Barbie came in to run it in the second season. And I always say she's been a showrunner for as long as I've been a TV writer. Yeah. And um, But I continued to you know, do a lot of writing and sort of really proved myself through the writing and the sort of understanding of the show and then finally got a chance to to run it myself in mm-hmm. the third season. And so, you know, we also have what's a challenge and also the benefit of resetting every season. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a new show within the show every season. And so in the third season, we have a female sutress for the first time. That's so right. that sort of changed things tonally a lot as That's well. That's interesting. We talk about so now. what it... From the stuff you have worked on, you talked about, you know, you have worked on, you have this pretty extensive resume. You've worked on a bunch of different (laughs) kinds of shows for different showrunners. What have you taken from the people you've worked for and applied to your own show running? And and how are you changing it? Well, I feel that I'm very collaborative. So I've worked for some great showrunners. Ed Redlick was a showrunner on Without a Trace. And from the very beginning, I was a staff writer then, but I was on set. I was dealing with Anthony LaPaglia and (laughs) the other actors there. He brought me into the editing room, and I'll never forget, it was Halloween, and he was leaving, I think, to to go do something with his kids. And he said, can you put these last three notes in? And I was a staff writer. I'd never (laughs) done this before, and I was just so chuffed. I just felt so important that he was trying this to me. But it really was, you know, empowering the people underneath you. And it's how TV used to be that there was this real apprenticeship mm-hmm. so that, you know, you really did work your way up. And by the time you got a chance to create or run your own show, you really knew what you were doing. So I try to do the same thing in terms of really letting my writers produce their episodes. We're very collaborative. I do all notes calls with the studio and the network in the writer's room so everybody can uh-huh. listen in. Um, I do notes to writers with everybody there. Everybody can hear um, it's it's to make everybody feel they're part of the process, but also I feel if you hear the notes that the showrunner is giving to another writer, your own writing will improve. You'll mm-hmm. have a better understanding of what it is that they're looking for. And similarly with the notes calls, you'll have a better understanding of what the studio or the network uh, is looking for. Yeah. So, And I try to really 
encourage people to write from a personal place and to bring their hearts and souls to the writer's room because that's what's been really amazing about Unreal is to get to write material that thematically is so personal and feels so great. And so, um, you know, that's sort of the only point I feel like of being a writer is like you look at the world and you think thoughts and then you say them to other people and you hope (laughs) that that creates greater understanding with them. And so I want that opportunity for all of our writers. I want to talk about that with you guys. Um, And Holly, we'll start with you. But what was your way in to step up? Like, could you find a personal story to tell in there? Um, that is just a really good question. When they um, called, the show already had a 10-episode order, mm-hmm. so that was a really tasty gig for anybody. Absolutely. And it was also um, the first big show on a brand-new network. Yeah. So we're their big swing. And that's kind of a once-in-a-career possibility for yeah. people, too. But even given all of that, I wasn't sure that it was my gig. Um in long measure, because I'd, I'd done a show kind of pretty similar to, to it before, like right. in the world of of young people and sports and dance, and right. you know, I get those calls, and I just, you know, not to mention, I mean, the franchise is a juggernaut. Like you guys would be shocked how much money is <laughs> yeah. made. It's like behind the Fast and Furious. It's astounding, huge amounts of money. But you know, as I said to them, like we've stepped up, we've stepped out, we've stepped in. <laughs> <laughs> what more I have to say about it? And But it's uh, an interesting thing. I mean, yeah. like it's clear why they came to you, right? You've done this on the show. You've sort of worked in this world. But for you as a creative person, well, you've worked in this world. Correct. So what new do you have to say? So what? how Correct. did you start to sort of figure it out? Um, well, what I say now is the truth. And I never used to say it like this before. But I, you know, at the risk of sounding absurdly woo-woo, I don't think that I create it. I think that... I call it down, it downloads or it doesn't download. Mm-hmm. Like it comes to me or it doesn't come to me. I mean, obviously, there's certain themes in everything I've ever written um, from my feature non-produced feature <laughs> career, my long feature career with nothing produced, to, to, you know, the shows that I've um, had on the air, which, you know, underdog is a big thing for me. Class is a big mm-hmm. thing for me. There's certain themes just based on my life experience that keep coming around. Um, so, and those happen to be in the DNA of the step up movie franchise and I tried to isolate the DNA of the franchise but it's a it's a genre yeah. and it's a subset of the sports movie sports film genre so I'm uh, I'm acutely aware of writing to that and as I've said before and I said on our TSA recently it's there's a reason why sports movies and dance movies exist as movies on the big screen and they don't exist hmm. as TV shows because structurally they're leading up to a big right. epic showdown and to and to do it for TV, you have to completely deconstruct the structure of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yet still giving the people the visceral experience that you want a sports right. or dance movie for, right? So, um, um, but then, you know, I was also thinking, about it, well, fuck, I know how to do that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and also all the, the sneaky little tricks of, like, you have a whole cast that has to be in training for gymnastics in, in every second that they're not in, <laughs> or in training to dance every second sure. they're not in. So even just, like, um, running the show is challenging um, but I learned a lot of the tricks um, in Make It or Break It. And mm-hmm. the weird thing is, like, completely unlike unlike you, I 
I ran my first show, and I was the only person on that show that had never worked in television. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> well, well, I want to get to that. How does that happen? Um, <laughs> just, just having luck. But because <laughs> I knew how, uh, the the one thing that I said when I got the chance to run the show, and because I'd been an independent film executive, mm-hmm. I'd been a magazine editor, I'd been a working journalist, I knew budgets, I managed mm. hundreds of people, I was in the edit. Like, so when you're a showrunner, you know, the, the blessed showrunner training program, not you know, is a great thing, right. but it really doesn't actually train you how to run the show if you don't have a, that skill set. And it just so happened that every single thing I'd done in my whole life... Yeah. Train me like yeah. it's like oh all of these pieces train all of these to pieces and there's nothing frankly more exhilarating and that's how I describe it as being the CEO of yeah. a show and if you're the creator of the show being the CEO of a, a product that you're reinventing every week <laughs> sure. so um, but it, there's nothing more exhilarating <laughs> truly and personally fulfilling other than having a child I guess uh, which is kind of the same thing than um, than having a job that uses everything you've got mm-hmm. that everything you've learned everything you're good at yeah. and that's really what show running is and you don't know if you're good at it until you get the gig and I just happened to like have gotten the gig and yeah. uh, was good at and it and you rose to it yeah. for sure so how how has Step Up been dissimilar to Make It or Break It what did you have to learn on this new show well what I I mean your first question is you know what did you bring to it you know like so I was waiting for something to download and I was despite the tastiness of the gig Mm -hmm. uh, and another tasty aspect of the gig frankly was I was fascinated by YouTube fascinated Mm -hmm. by the Google algorithm behind YouTube fascinated (laughs) by that the whole enterprise that is YouTube and the more I've gone down the rabbit hole and gotten to see behind the curtain of YouTube the more wildly fascinated I am by YouTube It's, it's a very interesting place to tell stories it's a very interesting place to market your stories it's um hmm. i almost can't imagine not working for a streaming service anymore like oh, wow i really can't i mean my i'm writing a pilot also for amazon and they also have a lot of secret like sure. mojo behind them but um but so like all of that is nothing if you don't if you're not really passionate about the story mm-hmm. and i just didn't know if i'd have a story that i'd be passionate about so i was just regarding the franchise and i was thinking god it's really weird there's never been a gay person or a black person in a show about hip hop dancing i mean it's just weird That's I mean, really really yeah yeah, yeah it's just <laughs> how's that possible I know. it's crazy so i just like i felt that in the back of my head like well that's odd and then i and i thought like what if I just made the lead a gay black person? <laughs> and I pitched that, and there was kind of dead silence. On the other side of the oh, and then, no. uh, but, but I still didn't have the. I knew I didn't want fame. I knew I didn't want a school. I knew right. I didn't want you know. And basically, I was reading where it's a thing for sports stars and hip hop stars to give back to their old their communities mm. of origin by founding charter schools. So mm-hmm. LeBron James has one, and PDD has yeah. one. And I just thought, what if Kanye West had an art? What if someone crazily brilliant like Kanye West had an art school? What would that look like? And so all of a sudden, that elevates us into a conversation about the culture, because yeah. this is now about branding and fashion and performance yeah. art and, um, and you know, hip-hop wars and, yeah. like, I mean, just so many things that are more relevant and interesting but still could be part of this world. So that was, once that idea downloaded... Um, uh, and um, I had it set in Oakland because Oakland has a really historic hip-hop dance culture that um, I'd been following for a while and I was hmm. madly in love with. Um, and then they told me when I got the gig, we don't have any tax credits, you can't shoot in California. Hmm. So then I had to find a place that had the same indigenous, groovy, historic dance culture hmm. because uh, it was really important to me that it be real. And when it was set in Oakland, I was drawing on things like 
kicks and dope mm-hmm. and fruitful, like the West Coast independent film aesthetic. And I come out, I come from independent films. Yeah. So I thought, what if you made Step Up in a very specific cultural place with protagonists that we haven't had before and shoot it in a really independent and very gritty style? Mm. So that, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, now, now I'm interested. I think and you also just talked to everybody listening to this and watching <laughs> the oh, show. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Seriously. But they, I mean, uh, they bit, which was astonishing. Cause I'm not, I mean, I'm, I kind of think Suzanne Daniels wanted the big, fun step up. Sure. I, you know, I kind of think she did, but God bless her. She, like, went along for the ride. That's and so really where cool. is it set now? It's set in Atlanta, which is, oh, you know, okay, the yeah. home of the whip of the nace since you have children. And sure. also yeah, just, you know, it, it's basically the Nashville of hip-hop. and. Yeah should embrace itself as that, but it doesn't embrace itself as that, which is also like the community versus the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a lot of many more interesting ideas yeah. than I ever thought were possible. There's drama built into Correct. even that decision. That's really interesting. Uh, and can you talk about the secret sauce that the streaming services have? Yeah. Or is that like behind the curtain and you can't tell a me? A lot of it, it is, is straight up behind the curtain. But uh-huh. as soon as... Um, the person that was most interested in kind of both my take and the secret sauce was Channing Tatum, who's one of the producers. And we started talking about all the ways that you could tell story in this universe. And we haven't actually really even done that this yet with the first 10, but everyone in our world necessarily exists in the YouTube ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So you can go down the rabbit hole and tell stories. Sure. Wait, what do you mean by that? They exist in the YouTube ecosystem? They They're would. Like- they would in the world of the show. They would right. naturally. Oh, I see. They would be YouTubers. Yeah. So my, right. I keep saying Kanye West, but I don't want to piss him off. Right. Um, like it's a, you know, it's a mishmash of a lot of um, kind of fierce people, and he's it's a character named Sage Odom. He's played by Neo. Um, uh, well, because it's you know you have to find someone who can act, who can dance their ass off. Because everyone sure. in my show dance. We cast them all as dancers first, and then as actors. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So everyone's pretty much oh, a fresh. That's fresh exhausting. Face. Yeah, it was, but great. It's exa- exa- exciting. I'm sure. And dancers when you are find passionate, the and they're hardworking, yeah. and they're not assholes. <laughs> not that actors are, but like. Yeah, they, they were just a jo- They just lifted us all up. Yeah. Every it's a day. different kind of work. It's to a different kind of be, work to yeah. become that. Um, so, so in exploring this idea, like. Uh, the most obvious thing is like, look, any of these guys could have their own YouTube channels. We can right. spin off story into yeah, that. Yeah, but also uh, like, um, not just spin off, but like, play with time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them as a child. You're doing this multi their whole life story correct. Telling. And then, all, and then we were also just interested in what YouTube can do. So, um, because of Channing, they brought us all back in, and the people from Silicon Valley came down. I was like, oh, and then they asked, like, would you be interested in what people who are what actors who what actors people who adore dance videos like? Oh my gosh. I'm like, yes. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I would be crazy. very curious about that. Sure. So they yeah, have I keep that. saying we have to use it for good and not evil. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, like a month ago they we went through the marketing plan and it is um, truly astounding what this they is do. fascinating but you know do they uh, we're the first one we're right. the, their first do they have the capacity to do it do they have the sure. manpower to do it that like we'll see what the execution is like yeah. but theoretically what they can do is amazing that's really interesting I'll be really curious to see this play out me too <laughs> <laughs> me too um, but let's let's get to you Nick um Let's talk about uh, Channel Zero and how you became involved with this and why you are the guy. And in a similar way, you know, it feels like you are supposed to be writing these. Yeah. um, I mean, I started as a fiction writer. Um, I was, uh, you know, I I was a horror guy from when I was a kid. Uh, 
And I always thought I was going to be a novelist, you know, and and not make a living as a writer. <laughs> and so um, I was I was an assistant at an investment bank for mm. uh, for a number of years. Then at a certain point, um, you know, I was writing this like weird fiction that was it was it was technically published. I call it privished. It's like out there, you know. <laughs> there's books and stuff. Um, but uh, at a certain point, uh, I was I teamed up with a friend. We became writing partners. We came out here for three weeks. Now it's now been eight years, <laughs> um, and just started uh, trying to break into the industry. And actually, Marty Knoxon was the producer on the first thing that um, that we ever sold, oh, wow. which was uh, a, a, a young adult show to then ABC Family. Um, that's when she was teamed up with uh, with Don Olmstead mm-hmm. of the Grady Twins. Uh, who's now my executive on um, on, on Channel Zero UCP? There so, you, uh, you know the people that you meet when you're kind of like going around doing the water bottle tour. Um, <laughs> actually, I remember uh, going into Marty and Dawn's office early on, and the receptionist there was like really on top of things. And I was like, we should like keep an eye on her. She's going to be like, and now, and then she became the executive on another project I sold. Uh, now she's an exec at AMC. Oh. So, like, be nice to everybody. You know, <laughs> that's the, so true. Um, and uh, anyway, I mean, I... I uh, so you guys, so you started working with this partner. Did you guys write an original sample? Did you write a, a spec yeah. of an existing show? How did we, you we wrote, start to break in? We wrote original samples. Uh, we wrote multiple original samples. Mm-hmm. We wrote original features, original TV stuff. Um, the first thing that we did was sit down and watch pilots and mm-hmm. diagram them, you know, exhaustively. This I haven't talked about this on the podcast in a while, but this is a really valuable thing well, for new writers, especially. Yeah, I, 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 talk about I, I would recommend that to anybody who's starting out. I mean, mm-hmm. both both of us were novelists, mm-hmm. um, had no training in TV, no connections to TV, no idea how the business worked. Um, I didn't know what staffing season was when mm-hmm. I came out here. Um, but we watched, you know, the pilots of Lost, Twin Peaks, The Shield, all this, you know, kind of great drama stuff and diagram them exhaustively to, like, Mm -hmm. see how the structure worked. And then, you know, that's stuff that I internalized and kind of still use to this day. If you do it enough, you do start to internalize it. And it is, I mean, just to sort of take a step back, uh, we're talking about reverse engineering, right? This is something we do in the writer's room is we will break a story and then create the the story based on that. When you're watching a pilot and diagramming it, you're reverse engineering that. You're saying, how did it come together? What are the moves that were put into place by the writers during that process? Yeah, and the other thing there is just try and get the original scripts for the things you're diagramming, see how it changed. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think there's any more valuable education for just like the structural stuff of Mm -hmm. script writing. So... Um, then, uh, I, I mean, I was out here for a couple of years before, um, I guess about two years before we got hired on Teen Wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the room that kind of taught me how to do serialized storytelling. That was season two of Teen Wolf. Mm-hmm. Jeff Davis, uh, was, uh, was running it. Um, and, uh, you know, that he was my first boss who like, uh, well, my first boss and, and, um, I took the stuff that I got from him and it still kind of apply it to, to my room today. Mm-hmm. What is some and of that then, stuff? Um, r- sort of rigorously, ha- having a set of questions that you ask rigorously about every episode. Hmm. You know, on, on Teen Wolf, it was, um, 
you know, uh, certain things that, that aren't necessarily what I ask about my show, but, uh, you know, it, it does, does the character have a hard choice? Um, just the really basic stuff, you know, what is the tension of every scene? Like, just make sure that you have these kind of like super basic things that you can easily leave behind as you kind of become more advanced as a writer. And um, sometimes I'll give that stuff to the writers at the beginning of the room and be like, let's make sure, you know, as we get mm-hmm. into the kind of frenetic pace of uh, of getting stuff out there that we always apply sort of like the basic stuff or at least we're aware of these things so we know why we're not doing them if uh, <laughs> yeah. if we're going like you know doing something it's a choice um, and not unusual. happening by default <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and then uh, and you know after that I worked on um, uh, I worked for Sean Ryan who's uh, whose show The Shield was probably the, the reason that I started writing TV mm-hmm. um, because there was a certain I think you know a lot of people had this moment of like realizing somewhere like oh shit like they're doing this stuff on TV like really <laughs> like there's people writing this and it's not you know uh, just the same cop shows it's like wow um, and then for me there was that second moment of like oh wow you can make a living as a writer somewhere mm-hmm. like uh, so, um, so what did that, you do with Sean Ryan? Uh, Last Resort on oh, ABC okay. yeah uh, it was Sean and Carl Geideshek yeah. um, and uh, and and from Sean I learned stuff about like um, like you were saying uh, uh, making your writer's room kind of an apprenticeship for everybody. You know, he would have us into the editing room. You would go and produce your episodes on set. Um, it was kind of a mini showrunner training program, <laughs> and to the degree that I can, I try and do that on my show. I can't send writers to set most times because the writer's room is over well before we go into production, which mm-hmm. is frustrating. Um, but on some occasions, I have been able to bring writers up, and um, and then can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, if if the room is over when you go into production, and something goes tits up, like with the cast, <laughs> per, like are you mm-hmm. then left to to do all the re- rewriting yourself? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, so we're sort of a unique case because our seasons are only six episodes, so we have these, and they're, oh, they're, it's right. an anthology show, so. Um, so they're basically like long movies, and uh, um, we have one director per season, so we cross-board everything. So we're shooting out all our locations. So have uh, you ever had an instance where things had to be unraveled? And oh my god, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. What? Can you, uh, you just on your own? Uh, well, not in, I'm not entirely on my own because um, because it, it's very collaborative with the directors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know on on. Our show, we're really conscious about having directors who are not journeymen, you know, mm-hmm. who come in, who, um, who, who give notes on the scripts that are, like, taken very seriously. Um, and it, when you're asking, you know, uh, is there an example of this, on our season two, um, Channel Zero, No End House, which aired in the fall, uh, you know, we were in prep. Our director, Stephen Pyatt, who is fantastic, um, he he and I were kind of sitting down with the, our producer Eric Crary, who's his writing partner on other stuff, and we sort of realized like, okay, this finale is not it's not doing what we want it to do, hmm. um, and like all the pieces are there, but uh, it, it it's just not landing quite the way we want it to. There's tension missing in this section, and. Um, you know, right before we went into production, I went and like rewrote the entire thing. Not not entirely a page one rewrite, but like really pretty much rewrote the whole script mm. over the la- over two days. Um, 
And I remember one of the actors saying to me, like, oh, I'll just look it up and see if any dialogue has changed, any of my lines have changed. (laughs) Oh, shit, this is like, this is a whole new script. Uh, And, uh, um, you know, it's much better for having done that. And I don't have to do that every weekend. But But isn't there such a thing as finaleitis? Do you guys think, or is it like just me? Like, you, especially on serialized shows, which, you know, we have, it's. I find the penultimate show is the most exciting, tension-filled show, and then the finale is just, ah. It's, it's almost checking box. Ah, yes, it's ah, and then, like, cliffhanger. You right. Know. Yes. Um, and I've, I've just got to get, I feel like I've got to get better at that. I, I, I think that works really well in, like, the Matt Weiner, like, 12-episode kind of Sopranos Mad Men thing, but I can't do that because it's only six episodes. So, yeah. if, you know, if, sure. our, if our climax was the fifth. Um, but... Uh, um, and you have sort of the luxury to be breaking and then writing it all yes. well before production. So you have your writers there. You that can is come true. up with those discrete six episodes. Yeah. Uh, and create a whole. I, I, for better or worse, I expect to be rewriting until the camera rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's maybe not a good way to do it. But I, I, A, I know myself. Um, and I know that, like, I'll think of things later or – just as likely or more likely the director or, you know, could be anybody. Like, the DP will think of something later. Um, we had a... I, I like to bring in artists on the show sometimes. We had a, this artist, uh, she's a sculptor named Sarah Sitkin, who does what some people call horror art. Um, mm. She's LA-based and does this amazing stuff. And she helped us conceptualize some stuff mm. um, for season two. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she would have an idea of, like, well, maybe we could represent this this way, you know? and And... I'd be like, that's a good idea, you know, and then go back and rewrite the script sure. based on that. Um, and when that happens, of course, a lot of people have to suddenly, like, turn on a dime. And it's like, okay, instead of building this corpse, we're going to, like, build this <laughs> thing that looks entirely different. It's like, costs some money. That's interesting. Um, but, yeah. Um, I want to pick up uh, – I want to get back to uh, channel, channel Zero, but I want to pick up on something you were saying, Holly, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot, and that is in this serialized storytelling world that we live in, at least for the time being – um, the idea of telling discrete stories while serving the 10 or 6 episode arc and getting people invested with that first episode, you know, like, I feel like this is something you must have faced with the new show, and I assume it's serialized. Yes. Um, getting people invested in that pilot. So they are along for the ride, but also telling a complete story. Like, right. a well, pilot asks a lot of a person. Of a writer. It does. And I'm I'm really surprised, though, how many people um, stick with a show when they don't like the pilot. Like, mm-hmm. I just, unless it's a friend, I don't have that time. <laughs> yeah. But so many people do. Really? But there's also, there's so much TV now. Correct. Right? And people have all of these options. Um, so there is the threat of them going away if they don't like the first 10 minutes, the first 30 minutes, the first hour. Yeah. Uh, so, so how can you... How can you rig your pilot so you're you're doing the job a pilot needs to do and bringing them in? Well, I mean, I think we can all speak to that. It's particularly challenging um, unless you're, you know, an 800-pound gorilla, which, you know, I'm not. I'm, I'm just, you know, um, I'm, you know, your mid-level showrunner person. It, it, it's the it's – the, it's the episode that so many eyeballs are on, and there's so much fucking opinion about yeah. it. So um, in the case of Step Up, I had um, two pods and an additional producer, 
Um, I had a studio. (laughs) I had a network who was highly invested in this as their first big show. I had a studio that um, I can only assume is highly invested in that relationship with that network and vice versa, probably. Mm -hmm. So um, when there's so much attention, so many eyeballs, so many opinions, um, at the same time you're negotiating in this case because we had the episode order you know a constantly moving budget and um you know we had five episodes written before we'd cast a person mm-hmm. so yeah. you you know i i i'm a firm believer in the pilot process because it's a you know it's a beta test for the show you see what relationships mm-hmm. are working with like it, it, um without that i i think it will fight for that mm-hmm. even though we had the 10 episode commitment um there was just there wasn't the appetite to make the pilot first mm-hmm. um um, I think I would fight harder for that next time. But the, yeah, you the, learn a lot. Yeah, the hardest thing about the pilot is that it has to do so many things, and so many people have an idea about it. Mm-hmm. And it's really, um, I think, as I get older, um, I'll get better <laughs> at that because it's it's just really really difficult. Yeah, it's really difficult, and I'll I'll be frank, and the studio and the producers will cop to it. Like the reshoots that were done in the pilot were things that you know you get talked out of and I think these guys will will also say that every time you see something that doesn't work I particularly feel this way about pilots but also often in the series but always about the pilot when there's something that's not working the worst feeling is you always knew it was not going to work you always knew it and you folded and that is that is the that's the little self-loathing piece that I'm going to try not to you know have the opportunity to make another one not do again because um, it just wastes everyone's time and money. We'll fix it in post. At some point, somebody said that. <laughs> One thing that a lot of people don't know about Unreal is that um, there was a whole other pilot that of Unreal that never made it to air, yeah. and it was completely redone. So when I came on board, I had read the script that Marty and Sarah had written together, and I fell in love with it. And I, what I was in in love with was that there was this main character who was in such a predicament where mm-hmm. she was a feminist who found herself um, working on a dating show like The Bachelor and uh, hated herself for working there, but also was really good at it and manipulating the women and kind of got off on her ability. Right. And um, so, and and what that gave her, the kind of power that gave her and, you know, sort of it was this real battle for her soul. Uh, that and like I said, it was based on the the short film that Sarah made. There was a pilot that was made that I saw that, frankly, was not awesome. I'll put it that <laughs> way. And I, it was disappointing because I had liked the pilot so much, and so um, that sort of made me go, mm, you know, Marty has this other show. Maybe I should talk to Marty about working on this other show. But Lifetime said um, we're thinking about reshooting a great deal, a hmm. great portion of the of the pilot. And then, um, to their credit, in the studio, A&E Studios, they put in the money to reshoot the whole thing. Hmm. And I really feel that it is a film school exercise. I don't know if they'd ever let anyone see the two different pilots, but I really do think it's an interesting exercise because the script is um, exactly the same, except for that the character of Chet uh, was removed from the first pilot. And oh, wow. so he came back in. He was in the script that I read, but not in the pilot that I saw. So he came back into what we um, shot, which was part of our first, you know, 10 episode order. So I was around for that part. Um, and there was some recasting that was done. Uh, it was not shot in Atlanta anymore. We moved it to Vancouver, which. Um, 
isn't ideal, but it's like the light, the the way that it looked in Atlanta, it was hard mm-hmm. to make it look like Beverly Hills or Malibu. It was supposed to be. And um, and it was a different director and um, tonally um, very, very different. So, But I just feel it was shocking because nobody ever gets a chance to, for a do-over, really. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think most of the time you sort of look at it and go, mm, well, that didn't work out right. and, you know, but on to the next. But that it was all of these small, like that, it was the same script. Yeah. Right? And it was these small things that just kept moving it further and further away from what it could be. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it just shows there's a real, even when you had an artifact of the short film to yeah. say this is what we want it to look like, you know, there are so many personalities and so many opinions and so many f- choices that go into every so many opinions that go into every choice, like the casting, like the director, mm-hmm. everything. So um, it's possible to make many, many different shows. So, <laughs> so same idea. coming in on the third or fourth season, mm-hmm. like, so now you know the tone of the show, right? Yeah. You have a very clear target. You've done 20 episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but story is a different thing. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a great room. So how are you talking to your room about, like, how do we make this story the story that should be Unreal Season 3? Yeah. Well, we started, so... Um, Sarah and I sort of sat down together on a couch for a few weeks before mm-hmm. we came into the room and talked about what we wanted the season to be. And for me, it was um, a couple things. So there was a lot of plot that happened in season two um, that was uh, somewhat controversial in the press. Not everyone loved it. Um, and I felt very strongly like we were not going to just pretend that that didn't happen mm-hmm. or shy away from those um, plot points that happened, but what I felt we hadn't had an opportunity to do was really sit with the sort of emotional and psychological effects of the plot points that had happened. And so it was, you know, because basically Rachel had gotten Jeremy to kill two people, is <laughs> what she had done. And it was a point about did she really get Jeremy to do that? Did she produce him to do that? You know, what is her level of responsibility in that? But, and that's a big plot point, but it's like, I, and, and, um, we had to sort of really sit in the seat of what is the reality of what she would be doing if that was the case. And um, and same thing um, for Quinn. But so, so it was with Rachel and Quinn looking at where I wanted to start them sort of emotionally and psychologically. But then also it's the show within a show and what did you want to do? And, and so we have, like I said, a female sutras for the first time. And so what we're really looking at thematically for the season is um, gender politics and how – um, to a great portion of this country, a smart, strong woman is the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> and um, also looking at how many of those smart, strong women find themselves frustratingly single, you know, hmm. as you sort of work your way up the ladder and you're doing better and better at work, it seems harder and harder to find a man. And it's challenging to sometimes figure out who am I supposed to be? Like, I'm supposed to be this, you know, rah, rah, you go girl, kind of, you know, kick-ass person at work. And then the second you go on a date, you're supposed to turn into this completely other demure sort of flower, a much more sort of traditional definition of um, femininity. And so how do you meld those two things or should you have to? And um, and having a female suit trust enabled us to have Rachel and Quinn sort of use her as their avatar to work Mm -hmm. out their own feelings about being smart, strong women. And when we were um, first talking about the season, you know, it was um, everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. (laughs) And so it was at that time. And we even sort of got questions you know, from the network saying, like, really? Is this really still an issue? Like, really? <laughs> and um, 
And, you know, God bless him. I wish that that, you know, even if she had become president, I think it would have sure. been an issue. But I really saw the vitriol that Hillary Clinton, you know, was subjected to on the campaign trail. And that's where this idea started, where it's like, wow, people really are frightened, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um and so that's, you know, where that started. And so we had talked about all that. And then, you know, um, we have a um, what we call a real-ass shrink who comes in this season, you know, um, a real therapist who sort of takes Rachel on this journey because as she comes to terms with what she did or didn't do in terms of producing Jeremy to kill those two people, she does – he helps her to take a real look at sort of where this darkness comes from in her mm-hmm. and some of the stuff from her childhood that also got revealed in, in season two um, – and um, so the season is also kind of Rachel's hashtag me too um, moment. And she, you know, starts to delve into that and how her family reacted and, and that sort of thing. So it's very um, uh, sort of intense emotional stuff. And for Quinn, you know, at the end of season two, she had found out that she couldn't have kids. And she kind of preemptively broke up with John Booth, her her um, boyfriend. And... It's one thing to say, like, well, you know, I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to have a partner, and I'm totally fine with that, and I have my career. My career is going great. Um, But, like, your career really has to be banging, you know, for that to actually um, fulfill you, at least for Quinn, you know. And as we find her at the beginning of season three, her career is really not. Like, the show's been shut down for six months because of what happened at the end um, of that season. And um, her reputation in the industry has really taken a hit for that, which I believe is things that happen for Mm -hmm. people and for women in particular. Um, And she really needs to get it back and she wants to be Shonda and she wants to have that security and the sense of self that comes from having your own empire. And then over the course of the season, she has to discover if that is enough for her or Mm -hmm. if she does need some sort of human connection beyond her relationship with Rachel if, you know, she needs some sort of romantic um, relationship. And it's compounded by the fact that Chet now has a 24-year-old swimsuit model girlfriend. And he (laughs) says to her, you know, she's just easier. And it's um, so offensive, I feel, that the the sort of implication that who Quinn is as a person was somehow part of the problem in their relationship. And then, of course, he has to come to terms and figure out if easier is actually what he wants or what he finds sexy in a woman. I mean, that's a lot of work. And you guys walk in with these sort of All of that for the room. And then it seems like it's just a question of how do we dole this out how do we yeah I mean certainly I mean those are the big ideas that we come in Mm -hmm. with um, and I do feel that it is you know our responsibility to come in with stuff and not just be like so we got another season what do you guys (laughs) think you know Um, but then absolutely the writers contribute characters and stories and ideas but then we go pitch the network and it's very worked out very very worked out Um, I it's some of it is just for me like I don't really know and the same thing is true in an outline I I just I have to have the whole thing broken the whole idea the concept Mm -hmm. of a story document to me it's like you reverse engineer into it because I I'm like, I have to break it, mm-hmm. and then I'll write you a paragraph of what it's going to be about. Yeah. It's hard for me to and know. And I'm a, a horrible over-pitcher. I, my <laughs> pitches are, are 45 minutes an hour every single one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know what it's like to pitch 20, a 20, like, who, I, what? How do you do it? <laughs> How do you do, can do that? I, 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 I yeah. can't, and it's. I wish I could, because I know mm-hmm. that I'm missing something, but I just simply can't. And same with, uh, you know, my mm-hmm. story arc, you know, meeting, all those are just 
everything is finished. Right. Well, but, and it's better yeah. that you have change. that information. Yeah, right. it can change. Like you have to plant the trees, and you can yeah. cut them down and replant. But it, exactly. you know, just to have everything relative to everything else, it's all got to be there. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to Channel Zero and and sort of ask the similar question that like. So it is based on the Creepypasta uh, website and the stories that come out of that. And yeah, every every season is based on a different it. one of these right. short stories. So I'm curious um, about culling that and figuring out what is the story each season that you right. want to tell. Well, it's a, it's a nice kind of best of both worlds thing because there's a um, – I mean these stories are – are like this long. I'm making a gesture that shows that they're like you know three yeah, or four inches long on the page. Yeah. Some of them. I mean, some of them. Some some are you know eight or ten thousand words, but some are very very short. So um, we look for you know something that has a really interesting core concept, but also has a lot of room to explore. And the whole genre is basically. Um, it, it's it's fan sourced fiction, mm-hmm. and sometimes people take stories that somebody else wrote. They evolve, they change. So what we do with them in the room, I think, is in the spirit of that. Sure, it feels um, like an extension of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the show. I, I like to describe every season as like the nightmare that you have after you read the original story. You know? <laughs> or alternately... It feels that way. <laughs> they're, they're fan fiction of the original creepypastas. <laughs> right. You know, they're not supposed to be like, okay, this is, sure. you know, the mythology of Candle Cove. Yeah. It's like, this is, you know, this this is a nightmare that I and my writers had after we, uh, we you know, talked about this for a while. That's and a, then it's lived interesting it. to hear you describe it that way, uh, having just watched No End House. Uh, and they're... It's horror, for sure, but it's a different kind of horror than we've seen on TV for the most part. There's something very unsettling and dreamlike as opposed to, you know, jump scares. Yeah, that that is the goal. I mean, it's similar to, to what you were saying about dance movies versus, you know, TV shows. But So you can't sustain six or ten episodes or whatever of, of horror on TV if it's the kind of jump scare horror that can work in in film. Mm -hmm. You know, you just can't sustain that. So there's a a different kind of horror, I think, that works on TV, and it's a horror that's, um, you know, forgive the word, but, like, a little more existential. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it. I mean, Twin Peaks is really the best yeah. example of that. Where it's you know, or you Twilight might not be Zone. Twilight Zone. Totally, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, Twi- sure. Twilight Zone has the advantage of like at least each each episode is, is its own right. thing. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, sustaining that is is difficult. And we saw even on Hannibal, where Fuller really leaned into yeah. yes, unsettling and yes, this existential horror. But there's also a soap or there's an opera really right. going on. Mm. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a feeling of dread that you want to st- yeah. sustain and a feeling of unease and. I mean, Hannibal was. Um, I, I remember when that show came out. I was like, "Ah, oh, they're going to do Hannibal on TV. What are they going to do? Like, yeah. how are they going to do Anthony Hopkins?" Then it was easy to be skeptical of it. Totally, and and so I binged the first season after it had been on. The second season was about to air, and I was watching it. I was called my agents like, "Get me on the show, please! <laughs> Just get me a meeting on the show," um, because obviously I was a fan of it, but I also wanted to see how. Yeah. How how do you get something that weird on TV? Like it's it's like a it's like a Matthew Barney it's like an art project that he somehow yeah. got on TV. Well, what did you learn? Yeah, let's talk yeah. about this for a minute because I lot. had Fuller on uh, in the first season, so we couldn't dig too deeply because he yeah. was still sort of figuring it out. So and, and the first the season was still there, pretending to be a procedural. Exactly, it was right? still like, an NBC show. By yeah. the second season, this was not a network show anymore. Yeah, and then by the third season, which is the one the one yeah. I was on, it was like a full on like. So crazy. what did you learn about? 
how the sausage was made. Um, Sorry, everyone. Let me. <laughs> I'll I'll give you an anecdote, which is um, I was I did, you were talking about the showrunner training program. Uh, I did the the showrunner training program. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we were shooting Hannibal in Toronto, and so I was I would fly back to L.A. and be in the, for the Saturday right. you know things. They do it every Saturday. And um, the showroom training program is a great program, incredibly valuable. It's not about the creative stuff, really. Right. It's, it's about the nuts and bolts of diplomacy, how to not get fired, how to you know, come in on budget and deliver scripts on time and like, be friends with the studio. It's incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at the same time, I was sort of wondering like, in the program, like, okay, but like, what if – you know, what if you want to make something really different or really weird, you know, and, and, and they're against you and it's hard. What if you have to push back and fight? And so I'd be, I'd be getting these lessons about like how to be diplomatic, how to take notes. Everything. Then I'd be flying up to <laughs> Toronto where, you know, they were, they were making something brilliant and there was like crazy shit going down yeah. sometimes. Um, and and so, you know, I got to see uh, how Brian, through, like, sheer force of will, made something mm-hmm. extraordinary. Um, yeah. And, he uh, had a vision for this. He, oh, he did. But what I'm yeah, incredibly about, clearly. Uh, I mean, and th- that was clear from the very beginning, is he, he knew the story, kind of story he wanted to tell. How did he use the room? How did you, he use his writers for this? Um, he would come in, and I can only speak to the third season, mm-hmm. uh, which was, um, by that time, Steve Lightfoot was, uh, was the EP also. Mm-hmm. So um, Steve would run the room when Brian wasn't there. Right. Um, Don Mancini came in for that season. Uh, it was a really good room. And um, Brian, at the very beginning, knew basically what the outline for the season was. Um, he also knew what his visual touchstones mm-hmm. were for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we watched, we watched, uh, you know, stuff from Don't Look Now to Ridley Scott's Hannibal, mm-hmm. um, the talented Mr. Ripley. Mm-hmm. We watched all these kind of, uh, elegant thrillers, <laughs> um, Diabolique. Yep. Uh, and, and so we just sort of internalized that stuff early on. And also the other thing that I really took away from his style in the room was he would be like... You know, you you would pitch stuff that in any other room would make sense. Be like, well, okay, how does he get from A to B? Well, he finds the key, and then he goes to the thing. The lo- and Brian would just get a look like, I don't care about any of that. You know, and, and it's just like the procedural stuff. Yeah. It's just you forget about that the next day. He would be interested yeah. in um, the psychological, the visual, and that's the kind of stuff that um, if I took anything creatively from that room, that, I mean, which I did, uh, that was kind of the main thing was to, to go into a writer's room and just be like, okay, what is the non-obvious? What is, what is the version that you're not going to see on any other show that's going to stay with you? Um, I, I, I'm just not so interested in clue math. Right. You know, yeah. and, and that's the stuff that we get good at from room to room. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all do kind of clue math in our mm-hmm. in our sleep or like these beats. Um, what is the visual, psychological, poetic way to yeah. do something? That's interesting. Which is how you ended up bringing sculptors into the room. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, mean, it I will seems say connected. that, like hearing you say that she was a, a horror artist, uh, like explains so much because there was this unnerving sculpture 
yeah. throughout. Uh, yeah, she, I mean, she designed the sculptures really in the No End House. Um, she came up with the idea that uh, the the flesh memories would sort of mm-hmm. rise through the pool. I mean, yeah. people some who haven't seen the show have no idea what I'm talking right. about. But um, people should just go watch that. But there are some great will. visual yes. things that like a writer's room made up of writers may have trouble coming to. Yeah, so many totally. people who don't think visually specifically. Totally. I mean, it's a really good, just in general, I, I, I wish more shows would do this. It's, it's, it's valuable sometimes to bring people yeah. who have no idea like what the kind of nuts and bolts of TV production are in, in addition to all the people right. who do know that. Um, yeah. So you can get these things that aren't, that are a little outside. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to ask that uh, to you, Holly. Like, you're writing about very specific worlds, and uh, I don't know, maybe they are, they are worlds that you have a deep knowledge of, but I would assume at some point you had to immerse yourself in these worlds. I'm a and fan of both. Yeah, yeah. so so let's talk uh, specifically about Make It or Break It. I mean, obviously it must have been an enormous learning curve of just yeah. how to put together a show, but I'm curious about the story side of it and knowing what kind of story to tell on TV that is still capturing the world that you are a fan of. Yeah, I, it's, it was just such a fun show, and it's the gift that keeps on giving Make It or Break It in a weird way. And, I, you know, I'd never... Um, my whole feature career work comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was stuck in rom-com jail for a long, a long time. As a woman, <laughs> that's what, you know, you did yeah. in, the, in the 90s, early, early aughts, they mm-hmm. call it. Um, and I wrote one drama, and it was... Um, the Count of Monte Cristo with girls set in New York, and it was called Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> and that one drama got me um, blind deals with both the NABC family and uh, and uh, CW. Mm-hmm. And that's wild. Yes, and Polly, who went on to make Revenge at ABC Family, yeah. um, g- gave me that deal. But um, <laughs> uh, so um, so. The first thing I thought about drama is, oh, it's easy. I mean, compared to comedy, this shit happens. Look what's happening. It's crazy. Um, But, um, yeah, you have to, I mean, you're going to get your ass kicked by the community that loves it, and no one's going to love it more than the community that loves it. Right. And it's a really uneasy relationship. And make it or break it, I mean, there are podcasts, gymnastic podcasts to this day, and there's a story, a horrific story in gymnastics that we did in season three Uh, of the show. There's a podcast that just basically posits every week that, oh, this is what happened in Make It or Break It season. <laughs> you know, because we were, it, it just seemed like, um, again, it's just, it was the only thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to stay true to the world, you know, the world has rules, and you learn those rules, and then, you know, I guess stuff happens inside of it. And I guess we'll get the same, we'll get the same, I'll get the same response from, like, from the dance world, I think too. Like this oh, isn't yeah. real, but we love you. Like you know, <laughs> right. and that's a, an awkward place to be. And you make friends with those yeah. people. I mean, sure. the kind of horrifying thing, though, is the um, is the online response against the diversity of the cast of this version of Step Up, mm-hmm. which is really bloody horrifying. Mm-hmm. But to get back to your um, to get back to your question. Um, you you have to research the hell out of it because you can't fuck around with it. It's like it, you know they're just very they're just very specific. Yeah, and I would imagine worlds. there's so much 
there's so much drama inherent to the world for you to draw on. Correct. Like you don't really have to push out that far. Correct. So what I think stuff. of soaps, like I think of like you take the stakes of the world and extrapolate to what it would be for everyone. Mm-hmm. So with Make It or Break It, um, I actually have a very sporty family. I'm not at all sporty, but um, I have two cousins that are going to the Olympics. Oh, they're wow. second Olympics. Mm-hmm. No uh, way. Uh, yeah, no. And um, the Bjornsons, they're the two of the top Nordic skiers in the country. Amazing. You'll see them. Um, and, uh, you know, my nephew's pitching scuff the Yankees. And, uh, my, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I have, very, <laughs> I have a cousin who's the number two bareback rider, rodeo rider in the world. So it's like sport is an interesting, you know, has been a part sure. of my life. And I've always been on the outside looking in as someone who, who did not sure. choose sport as a path. So I think it's interesting to come at it from not the non-expert position, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but you have a little bit of a different. Correct. What I said about like extrapolating for the, so like what I saw in gymnastics were young women who were obsessively, obsessively interested in perfection, in perfecting their body, in um, in all the things my girlfriends with teenage daughters were doing. Sure. Uh, the theme of uh, an individual sport versus a team sport, mm. like who might versus you know individual person versus your friends. And I think that when you hit that thematic sweet spot of what the most arcane detail is of this world, but that is universal to the larger world, you're um, you're in a really good spot. But like like Nick. You know, we take great inspiration to the fellow like, Olympic and NCAA champion mm-hmm. gymnasts who did the stunts and make it or break it. Sure. Our dancers actually dance in, right. um, but we have fantastic choreographers. We have people like Debbie Allen that come in and direct, or Rich and Tone, who did the low down, who choreographed an episode. Oh, Our cool. great choreographer, Jamaica Kraft, who's a legend. Um, and these, uh, we have Savian Glover. So when these wow. people come into the show, um, just with the mastery, mm-hmm. the genuine mastery of what they do, like being a horror artist, it tweaks the whole. It tweaks and inspires the whole, the whole show. And I'm talking everyone from the people that drive them on set to the writers that are producing that episode, like to the actors. Yeah. Like it raises everyone's game and it ignites awesome. everyone with a level of like, you know, um, excitement and um, reality that you just can't yeah. get any other way. Well, it's funny. I mean, like, you as the creator have to sort of step outside, right, and say, what is interesting about this world? How do I make it universal? What's an outside perspective? And then turn around and draw in people who are part of that world yes. to give it that verisimilitude. Yes, and, and they're, of, they're of so excited to have the feeling. thing that they do yeah. be featured, That's and cool. especially in gymnastics until recently. Like, yeah. you were done, and then you went to Cirque du Soleil, and, like, <laughs> right. like, it, was, like it was over. <laughs> and the thing about gymnastics that I found fascinating, I found, like, um, the non you work your entire life for one day that you might be off that day, right. and you don't That's ever monetize it. It's just love. Yeah. I mean, it's just fucking love. Yeah. yeah. I think people don't realize that about the, the Olympics. Yeah. Like, you, hopefully you're going to get all sort of, sorts of sponsorships yeah, and things, right. but you do, you're doing it because you love doing it. Yeah, no, we know Nastia Luke, and we know Phelps, and we, we know, like, the right. certain people, but the other... Tens yeah. of thousands of people. That's fascinating. I can't think about characters. that because I find it too stressful to watch. <laughs> and I can't watch the Olympics. Right. It's very, very if you're disturbing. Have a bad day. <laughs> uh, I want to have a fun bonus round before we wrap up. Uh, you guys are all working in very specific genres. On top of uh, sort of a, a dramatic uh, genre. What is a great uh, sports television show? What is a show about Friday sport? night? Fucking. <laughs> did, did you learn a lot from that show? Um, I learned that I will never be as good a writer. <laughs> 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 That's what I learned. I mean, I would weep for that show because I'm from a rural state. Mm-hmm. Also, like I'm from Montana, where football is king, and yeah. my brother-in-law was the football coach. Like it, it, 
everything about that show. But in the way you were talking about doling out sort of that the arc of a sports movie, right, over ten episodes. Correct. He does that so he does, expertly. Yes. And and I feel like that must have been a great lesson for you. Yes. You know, you, you can hit those beats but still tell very human stories. Yes. In a weird way, I mean, um, Nashville is a little bit akin to that mm-hmm. with um with Step Up slightly and uh, yeah, the Lionsgate has been a fantastic studio partner with me on that on that because they did do um, Nashville, and then to have this, you know, um, when we decided to make it Atlanta, I decided to make the show really effing Atlanta. So we have the the greatest choreographer in Atlanta, awesome. Jamaica Craft. We have Pooh Bear is writing our original mm-hmm. music, and his partner um, Jared, um, w- uh, our music supervisor Jen Malone is the music supervisor for the show Atlanta. So she's clued into the whole trap scene of Atlanta. Wow. So like um, when we have a moment that's a dance moment. Um, it's just so fulfilling because it's like, okay, what does this mean for the character? Because if it, you don't just pick up a dance, it's a cliche, but it has to move character, it has to move story. Absolutely, it's bullshit. No, and it's, every, I mean, it's like the football game, correct? Right? Like it has to count game. to someone. <laughs> yeah, we we talk about that a lot. We yeah. do actually, talk, you know, reference that um, a lot. And um, and you know, so I get on the phone with Pooh or Jared or um, Jamaica. It's like, well, what would this look like? What would this feel like? Do we write a song? Jen will say, like, oh, I found this, like, young mm-hmm. art. Like, and just cool. to really to put together the whole ballet of those moments has been just fabulous. That's so exciting. I, yeah. you, I'm into this show now. I can't <laughs> wait to watch this. You really got I mean, me into I mean, it. what every director so that has come on board has said is, oh, shit, this is going to surprise people. Good. I, think I hope people watch it. Yeah. And to get surprised. Um Stacey, were you a reality watcher? <laughs> I was not at all. Have and, you become one? I have not at all. Really? Um, I do not. Um, I Like I said, I really consider our show a uh, character drama, mm-hmm. and it was exciting. You know, in the first season, I didn't think that there was anything revolutionary about the show. I didn't even really notice that there were two female protagonists mm-hmm. because they just seemed like complicated fucked up women um, I'm a complicated fucked up woman everyone I know is a complicated fucked up woman so it just felt really real to me and exciting to get to write for characters like that and that was the hook for me the fact that it was you know inside this cupcake of a reality TV show I mean certainly there are some thematic things that we have been getting at from the beginning, which is the destructive nature of reality television and the sort of princess fantasy that in particular these competition dating shows put out Mm -hmm. there, which is that um, you know, as a woman, you should look really good in a bikini, um, not ever really talk about your job, um, be totally fine with the guy dating 20 other women, and that you should compete for a man who is the prize, and that man should take you on a helicopter to Bali for dinner. And that is what (laughs) relationships between men and women look like. This makes sense. And and um and i and i think it's um it's really really destructive in our culture and i also think the the women fighting with each other and how people get off on that and um mm-hmm. i think that's really destructive too um so that was sort of part and parcel of it but again it's just starting with these characters yeah. and sort of going from there so i'm a fan like my favorite shows are like homeland you know which is another sort of crazy quote unquote female character who's in a job that potentially makes her even more crazy um, but she is really great at it and and derives a a real sense of purpose from it Um, and so I love those shows I mean of course like everyone else I love The Handmaid's Tale like those are the shows that I gravitate to and I hope that I write you know for our characters with as much truth and heart Mm -hmm. and soul as I see in those shows and so the only things that have sort of come into my awareness in terms of reality television there's just a couple of things. One is that um, 
they did have an African American bachelorette right. on the show after we had a, an uh, uh, the first African American suitor on mm-hmm. Unreal, and that was lovely. And then the second one was that um, on The Bachelor in Paradise this past season that one of the producers was uncomfortable with something that had happened and made a complaint to the studio. And this was mm. shocking to me because that show has been on for mm. 20 seasons, something I don't even yeah. know how many, but a long time. And I know a lot of stuff has had to happen, and but that this was the line and that there was finally someone who said, I'm not comfortable with this. That was um, really fascinating to me. And of course, it's unclear exactly, you know, what happened, but that was really fascinating. And that figures a little bit more into um, season four inspiration. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, Nick, what horror on television has gotten you excited or inspired in the past? Most recently, um, uh, honestly, Twin Peaks, The Return, Mm -hmm. which I was I was about to say like you know it has its flaws but it's weird to even say like it has it's just too weird it's to be judged to by the standard of anything else it is what it is and like like I was saying about uh, parts of Hannibal it's like an art project that found its way on TV yeah. um, and uh, I mean I watched it you know wrapped and there were parts that I was like scoffing at and parts that I was amazed at and um, it is just a unique experience. And the other, the other thing I think I was is uh, Legion, which mm-hmm. to me is a Absolutely. horror show, yeah. um, and it certainly uses a lot of the tropes. Yeah, it pays homage to some of the greatest horror films. It has an incredible like fluency with horror storytelling, yeah. um, and it's sort of pretending to be a, a superhero show. But um, I don't think it's pretending very hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it dispenses with that pretty quickly. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's that's the show that I'm tremendously excited to see come back. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, more inspiring than, than many shows that sort of self-identify as horror, horror yeah. shows. These are all good answers. Thank you guys so much for being here. Let's Thank let's you get so your much. plugs uh, one more time. Uh, uh, when do you premiere? Step Up High Water will be in 700 theaters along with the original <laughs> Step Up movie on um, January 30th. And if you go to Neat. YouTube, it'll show you where it is in your town, which is going to be a super fun event. Awesome. Um, and all episodes will drop the next day, the 31st. Great. Oh, wow. Very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. I can't wait to watch. Um, season three. Channel Zero Butcher's Block, starring Rutger Hauer and Holland Roden and Olivia Lucardi uh, and Crucia Fairchild, will be on Sci-Fi February 7th. Okay. And six episodes again? Six episodes. Great. As disturbing? More disturbing. I'm out. Uh, <laughs> okay. Unreal. Unreal season three with Caitlin Fitzgerald playing our first uh, female sutress. It premieres uh, February 26th. Great. Terrific. Thank you guys all for being here. Well, let's, uh, let's talk soon. Good luck to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.